Now today we ask several questions. The first one, um, can a Christian sin? We answered that because there are some people who don't believe that Christians can sin. That's where they have the teaching of perfectionism and so on. But we showed from scripture that Christians can sin. Then we asked the question, all right, so if a Christian can sin, can he commit suicide? We said yes as well, because suicide is a sin. And since we can sin, we can commit any sin. All right, then we asked the other question, uh, a Christian who commits suicide, will he lose his salvation or will he still be able to go to heaven? And we dealt with that as well. And we tried to demonstrate from scripture, especially using the passage in Romans 8, uh, and by the way, that's such a fantastic passage of scripture when it comes to eternal security. So please, uh, study that well. Get the truths down from Romans 8. If you get that, you'll have no more fear about losing salvation. In fact, it drives you closer to a God who loves us so much. So we uh, tried to demonstrate from that passage, uh, no, if you are truly a child of God, even if you should commit God forbid, suicide, you will still go to be with him. You probably would lose rewards, no doubt about that. But you will not lose your salvation. Now, there's another question that it's tied into this. Uh, Alan, I probably go to slide 31 on this one in case you didn't have it yet. I'm sure you do. The question is, is suicide the or an unpardonable sin? Now, as I said, actually you have already answered this question in that if Christ's blood covers the sins of all believers, past, present, and future, there really is no such thing as an unpardonable sin for the Christian. Do you follow that? If the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and takes care of the punishment for all sin, past, present, and future, then there's no such thing as an unpardonable sin for the Christian. I think that's very clear for the believer, right? So actually the question is really paradoxical or nonsensical when applied to a genuine believer. And as we saw this morning, Romans 8 makes this quite clear. Paul says to think that it's possible for a Christian to be separated from God after what God did on Calvary, it's unthinkable. It just, you, shouldn't even, you shouldn't even let that enter your minds. It's impossible. In fact, the same is true with the question, can a Christian who commits suicide go to heaven? Suppose I were to rephrase that question and ask it in this way. Will God allow one of his children, purchased with his own blood, go to hell? Just look at the question itself. Will God allow one of his children purchased with his own blood go to hell? And perhaps to be even more vivid, would God in the light of what he did with his son on Calvary send one of his children to the lake of fire? I mean, doesn't that question seem silly? If God gave up his only son on Calvary to take away our sin, the penalty of our sin. Would he then turn around and based on something we do, allow 
all the works of Jesus Christ to be of none effect? The question itself seems to be so paradoxical. As I've said this morning, will God allow the greatest act he has ever done, crucifying and raising his son from the dead, be nullified, invalidated, and made void by one action of a puny sinner like you or me? The answer is obvious. Of course not. He would not allow this. But now let's look at the question. Is suicide the unpardonable sin? Now I emphasize the because it indicates a specific unpardonable sin. A sin that is directly referred to in the scriptures. One such passage is Matthew chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. Matthew 12, looking at verses 31 and 32. Now this is a very crucial passage of scripture. I talked about a paradigm movement moment when we talked about the Lord's Supper and Jesus instituting the um, the um, um, new covenant. Well, this is also a paradigm moment in the in the in the history of Jesus Christ in the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter twelve, because this is when he turns away from the Jewish people. This is when they reject him officially. And he turns away. Look at what he says in verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. This is where we get the concept of the unpardonable sin. Cannot be forgiven here, cannot be forgiven in eternity. Now, the word blasphemy carries a lot of connotations. It, the general meaning is to slander or to speak evil against. You can do this in several ways. You can do it by, in, by attributing evil to God. That's slander. That's blasphemy. Saying God is evil. God does evil things. Attributing evil to God. Or you can also blaspheme him by denying him the good that is due to him. That's blasphemy. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. When it says that God gave them up and so on. And the reason why is they did not give thanks to him. Right? They did not give what was due to him. That's blasphemy. Another aspect of it is to attribute uh, or to attribute to God's creatures the attributes of God. Uh, an illustration of this is what the Jews accused Jesus of. Well, not accused him, but you remember when Jesus forgave the man and they said, who is this who blasphemes God? Only God can forgive sin, you see? They said Jesus was blaspheming, but he was a man. They looked at him as a man and said he could do what God did. These are some of the aspects of the meaning of blasphemy, just as it means cursing, 
in the, in the sense of using a bad word. It goes a little deeper than that. So what he's talking about here then, in this context is, as we'll see, attributing to a creature of God, in this case the devil, the attributes of God, the power to heal and all of that kind of thing. But let's get into the passage. Look carefully at the passage. The sin that will not be forgiven is clearly spelled out in this passage. First it's called in verse 31, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then it is explained in verse 32 as speaking against the Holy Spirit. You see that? Those are not two different sins. It's the same sin. One describes the other. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is speaking against the Holy Spirit. It's not speaking against the Father. It's not speaking against Jesus Christ, the Son. It's speaking against the Holy Spirit. Now, now why is it? Is the Holy Spirit greater than Jesus? Of course not. Is the Holy Spirit greater than the Father? Most definitely not. Then why is this speaking against the Holy Spirit? Is, this, is one that cannot be forgiven? Well, recall for a moment. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. What did they do with John? Rejected him. Isn't that right? Sent from God. So then God, so he was, God the Father was rejected because the man he sent was rejected. Then he sent his only son. What did they do with him? They rejected him as well. Now here's the point. They rejected him in this context even though he was manifesting, demonstrating the power of God to do what he said the Messiah would do when he came. To perform all these miracles. In other words, performing miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit was to be an evidence of the Messiah. So in a sense we see here that God is giving the Jewish nation opportunity after opportunity to come to him. They rejected John, they rejected the son, and now they're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the last opportunity they have. Because if they reject the Messiah, the king, then who are they going to turn to for salvation? Look carefully at the verses before. In verse 22, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. This was an evidence prophesied long ago of, a, of an evidence of the Messiah. He would be able to give sight to the blind and so on. That wasn't a common miracle. That wasn't a normal miracle. Only the Messiah would do that. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, notice the question now, this man cannot be the son of David, that's the mind. Can he? In other words, they, the people were tying the works of Jesus to the work of the Messiah as promised. The people were doing it. But notice what the Pharisees said. This man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I want you to see what's going on here now. The common people 
saw the connection right away of Jesus' works with the promised Messiah. But the Pharisees, the official religious leaders of the nation, did not. Instead, they attributed the source of Jesus' power to the devil. They attributed the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to Satan, a creature of God. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus' response. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, I love this, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. That's the important verse. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, was he casting out spirits, uh, demons by the Spirit of God? Yes, he was. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is here. The person of the king. Jesus is denying the charges and claims of the Pharisees as strongly as possible here. He's saying, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What he is saying is that he is in fact the promised Messiah King. And that his works through the power of the Holy Spirit validated that fact. Implying that they had rejected the King and his kingdom. Notice what Jesus says, verse 29. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and plunder his house? Jesus did this to the devil. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now listen carefully. This is an important passage. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying to these Pharisees who officially represented the religious people of his day, either you accept me as the Messiah or you don't. There's no middle ground here. Same way with John. When he talks about the children of God and the children of the devil. There's no middle ground. Either you're one or the other. Same way. He's telling the Jewish people now here, either you, reject, either you receive me on the basis of the work I do through the power of the Spirit of God, or else you reject me completely. And in doing so, you reject the kingdom of God. My miracles, Jesus is saying, which I have done by the power of the Spirit, have shown you that I am the promised one, but you have rejected me. You have chosen your side, and it's not on my side. What did he say? Notice his conclusion and fact, his indictment. Therefore, that's what the therefore is therefore. They show you the conclusion of all of this. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven you. 
But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of a man, Son of Man, it shall be forgiven. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And so the context clearly shows that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, speaking against the Holy Spirit in this context, is attributing the works of the Holy Spirit of God as promised by Jesus to validate his claim of messiahship to the, to the devil rather than the Holy Spirit, thereby shutting themselves out of the kingdom of God. And if they rejected him then, there'd be no chance for him to them in the future. That's why I personally do not believe that this specific unpardonable sin can be committed today. It has to do specifically, uniquely, and historically only with the person of Jesus Christ and the Jewish nation and their rejection, and accept, their rejection of him as the promised Messiah. I do not believe that this particular unpardonable sin could be committed today. This is one of the most crucial passages of the Bible, as I said. It makes the moment, it marks the moment in history when Jesus turns away from the Jewish nation as his official agency in the world and turn to the Gentiles until they, the Jews, repent and accept him as Messiah, which they will do in a future day. But until then, they're cut off as a nation because Jesus then turns away, as we'll see in a moment. And he says that the specific reason why he turns away from the Jewish nation is because of the fact that they had attributed his miracles, his works, not to God, but to the devil. That's the reason. This is why Jesus says later down in the passage, quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. This is just further down in the passage. Behold, verse 35, your house is left to you desolate. That's when he turns away from the people of Israel officially. Your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus then turns to the Gentiles with his message of redemption. That's why when you get into Matthew 13, you hear about the mysteries of the kingdom. Because now the kingdom has changed somewhat. And so my answer to the question, is suicide the unpardonable sin? My answer is no. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Personally, I believe the Bible is clear on it, if you study it well. But then we have to ask another question. Is suicide a unpardonable sin? If it isn't this one, is it another unpardonable sin? Meaning that is this a sin that is unforgivable by God? 
Now, this idea is often based on the belief that the person who commits suicide is unable to ask for and receive forgiveness after the act and therefore receive eternal punishment because you cannot ask for forgiveness after you are dead. In other words, the saying here, since suicide is murder of self, if you kill yourself, you don't have an opportunity to ask forgiveness for it. Therefore, you'll be assigned to hell. Now really, I don't see how rational people, really now, I don't mean to be mean here, but how rational people can follow this. Because suicide is sin. So is stealing and lying and committing adultery. Now, if we follow this reason, that means every sin we have committed, we've got to confess before we die, or else we won't go to heaven. That doesn't make sense. None at all, especially when you read about the nature of our salvation and eternal security. But this teaching that Suicide is a unpardonable sin, has its source way back before the time of Jesus Christ himself. The first person to debate the morality of suicide was the Greek philosopher Socrates, over 400 years before Jesus Christ. Socrates believed that human beings were the property of the gods and did not have the right to take away something, namely life, that only belonged to the gods. Now that was a pagan belief, but I believe that too. I'm not a pagan, you know. But that's where it began with Socrates here. The ironic thing was, he was forced to commit suicide himself by drinking hemlock. I don't know if you know the story of all of that. But although he was the one who originated the idea that suicide was a sin, that caused you to, uh, uh, to lose any kind of blessing at all. He himself was forced to die by suicide. A little ironic. But anyway, the first Christian to publicly denounce suicide as a sin was St. Augustine in the 4th century. But it wasn't until the 13th century that Thomas Aquinas presented the church's, at that time, official position against suicide. He did a comprehensive uh, summary of theology, still used in many seminaries today. And in this summary of his theology, he described suicide as an act against God, the same way Socrates did. And he denounced suicide as a sin for which one could never repent. That's when the concept of venial and mortal sin was given birth in the Roman Catholic Church. Suicide was seen to be a mortal sin. No forgiveness. That's why, as you saw in the Nassau Guardian today, and when I presented it on the, on the screen, the, Roman, the person who said that a person who dies, even as a Christian, will go to hell was a Roman Catholic. That's their official position when it comes to suicide. Now, many Protestants have accepted this teaching without even knowing its source. They simply have accepted it as what I call folk theology, meaning 
That is a belief that has passed down and we accepted it without examination or evaluation. It just came down, it was there, we accepted it. That's why in some churches, as I mentioned today, they won't bury a person who's committed suicide. Nor would they bury a person who's been executed for murder because of this belief. But from a purely biblical perspective, as I believe we've already established, the act of suicide does not in any way condemn anyone to eternal punishment and separation from God. When we ask this question, really, the question really has not to do with the act of suicide. It has to do with an understanding of eternal security. That's where the question really lies. Salvation and eternal life are the gifts that God freely gives to all who acknowledge their sinfulness to God and trust him personally. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the payment for our sins, past, present, and future. Now I believe that we have already established from the word this morning that salvation for any person rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, not in abstaining from any sinful behavior. Our committing suicide in of itself does not condemn anyone to eternal punishment any more than does any other sin for which we have not asked forgiveness before we die. For the Christian, there is no individual act of sin that can erase salvation, change their eternal destiny, or separate them from God, including the sin of suicide. And so I think we can safely and biblically conclude, no, suicide is not a or unpardonable sin. Beloved, I say once again, life is a precious gift from God. We need to do everything to secure that life for the glory of God. None of us has the right to choose the time of our death. Only God. See long.